Welcome everybody to the second episode of the Living Fast Podcast. I am so excited to have my second guest of the, of the season, Clayton. He's a personal friend of mine. I actually worked with him for the past three months and I'm still working with him every day. This guy has 13 years of project management experience. He's helped build some of the biggest buildings, the most successful commercial real estate companies in the world. But this guy is the bread and butter that makes everything possible. He's very type A and I'm very type B. So we kind of, I would say both of us are yin to yang. I'm a high risk player. He is all about mitigating risk. And once I thought about that, okay, well, he's all about mitigating risk. I'm a big risk taker. This would be an interesting episode to have him on. Also, he's been working at a Fortune 185 company for over six years. So obviously he knows what he's doing. And I know I have a lot of business friends out there. They're super interested in real estate, but this guy, he's not only a hard worker, he's a great guy too. And he definitely doesn't cut corners. So this podcast is all about having people on that live fast. This guy lives fast in a different way from me. And the reason why I wanted to have him on because I think that he's totally the polar opposite to who I am, but in the best way possible. So how we do it at Living Fast Clayton is we have people on and we try to do a campfire style to make them as comfortable as possible so they can share what they genuinely actually think. And I really didn't come prepared. I don't like coming with structure. I think like when we sit together and we have conversations privately, they go so well. So I want this to be really like one of those just on camera so you, we can uh, spread some knowledge and help some people. So the first question I want to start off with is if you were to come on here and provide the most value, where would you want to start off, Clayton? Well, I'd start by saying thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to start something up here get this living fast thing going. So yeah, I'm honored to be the second guest on the, on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just here to have a conversation. You know, we've, we've chatted about a number of things, you know, as we, as we've, as we've been working together the last few months. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm here to have a chat with you. What do you want to know? How can I, you know, share my perspective on what living fast means to me, if that's, you know, the topic that we're going for. Absolutely. So I think when you mentioned how we have conversations and you want to just sit here and have a conversation with that, genuinely, when we have conversations, I come up with you some idea such as I eat one meal a day, right? I'm eating one meal a day. You eat three meals a day. I'm extreme with it. I say, okay, Clayton, I wake up, I don't eat any food and I survive strictly on coffee where you'll wake up, you'll have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I start nudging you over time and really talking to you why you should change that attitude. But also there's things that I do such as, you know, I'm a little bit of a worker where I work in spurts where you're more consistent with your work. And then we kind of go back and forth. Okay, where we can find that middle ground. So I think like when I look at you, you're somebody who definitely lives life differently than me. But when it comes down to how you do your work, I think it's a lot different in the sense that you're more, how can I be, get things done, but by making people feel that they're not at risk or me, I'm all about throwing myself into risk. So where does that stem from? Like, I want to know when you make decisions, why do you do what you do? Why, obviously your job is project management and it's all about risk mitigation, but why do you think that's so important? Not only in your work, but also in your life. So in the, 
in my role as a owner's representative project manager, um, you know, I'm, I'm tasked with usually helping the client see a project through from kind of conception to, you know, design to construction and, you know, completion and, and closeout. And, and the reason why they would, the client would hire uh, a dedicated project manager rather than just leaving it to, you know, say the, uh, you know, the interior designers and the construction manager and so on. Why would they hire a dedicated person to, to be uh, a project manager is because they, they want somebody who's kind of trained in that, in that discipline of, as you say, risk, risk mitigation is, is, is the main thing and being able to, um, see, where a project might go off the rails, you know, kind of look into the future and then, you know, take steps or recommend steps uh, to ensure that things stay on track. And, you know, to, if, if anything is going on off track, you know, to alert the, the client that, hey, there, we might have a potential issue here. So uh, what do we do to, to correct course? What do we do to mitigate it? What do we do to avoid the risk? So, um, yeah, in terms of like my attitude, so yeah, I mean, I have to put on that, um, you know, that very risk averse hat when I, when I go to work, um, I would say that that's a role that I need to play in this, in this job. You know, does that mean that I'm always completely risk averse in every aspect of my life? No, not necessarily. I mean, uh, I like to you know, in my, in my career path, for example, I, I haven't always played it safe. You know, I've, I've, I've gone into new areas that, you know, were, uh, maybe outside my comfort zone, right? Like, you know, when I was, you know, after university, i I went and, you know, lived in East Asia for a few years, didn't know what I was going to get into over there. Right. But just said, oh, I just want to do something different with my life. So I, I picked up and left, um, so yeah, I, I would say that the risk mitigation, it's like an essential part of being a, a project manager. And uh, in fact, I've learned a lot from it that I've applied to my personal life, but it's not a complete, uh, you know, some people are, are born, you know, extremely conservative and they don't, you know, they just always <laughs> want to avoid, avoid, you know, uh, anything that's kind of outside their comfort zone or that they perceive as, as risky. I would say I'm not necessarily one of those people by nature, I'm, I'm probably more in the middle, I would say. Okay. Well, obviously when you look at project management, it's definitely that type of industry where you have to risk mitigation is something that's very large. And you talk about with your personal life, how you see how, when you throw yourself in situations such as we go to Asia, that was a risky move for you. That was a risky play. And although you're definitely like out of at JLL, I see you as like the bread and butter. You're the glue that holds everyone together. And the thing is, you speak about how you're maybe all aspects of your life is not very type A, not very, um, you know, risk mitigation. Sometimes you take risk in other aspects. What, why do you think that in this industry, and you say that you took things from being a project manager that you've applied in your own life, what are those things that have really 
helped you in your personal life then in terms of risk mitigation? Because you say you took some things from project management that helped you in your own life. What are those things and, and how, how have they helped you? Um, I would say one thing I've taken is just, you know, a bit more planning and foresight and kind of working through scenarios. I think probably when I was, when I was your age, I would have just thought like, well, you know, life is mostly just going to happen to me. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that I, I didn't plan and I can just sort of adapt to it and, um, you know, go, go where the river takes me, so to speak. Um, you know, go, just gotta go with the flow. I was very, and I was very much like that. And, and, uh, but you know, as I've, as I've gotten older, I'm a lot more, a lot more deliberate in terms of like, where, where do I want to go with my life? What are the, what are the advantages of, of going down this path or this path and, and kind of planning it out and trying to, you know, see over the horizon as to where, you know, if I do this, where it's going to take me. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely a little, little bit more, I guess, type A, as you would say. I don't, I don't really know the whole type A, type B thing. Like I kind of vaguely understand it, but. Type B is, I, I would say type B is, think about it like somebody who is not by the book. They don't, they're not as organized. They're mm -hmm. more go with the flow, mm -hmm. go, go down the river, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Type A is very planning, Project, ma project management, when I think of project management, it's yeah. all about clarity. Remember, a uh, first meeting Clayton and I had, we were sitting in an office and he asked me, what do you think project management's about? And I said, it's all about clarity. But after spending so long with Clayton, I've realized that it's much more than that. It's, it's about seeing a project go from start to finish and also dealing with relationships. It's a lot more relationship building than I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you have to make sure the relationships are really, really great. And what I've realized spending a lot of time with you specifically, Clayton, is you are actually somebody who's a lot deeper than, you know, I maybe have painted this picture of you as very type A, but I spend some personal time with you and you definitely have a side view that's, that's more laid back, more, low, uh, more just, you know, going down the river, mm -hmm. see where life takes me, go with the flow. But I notice when you get in that work mindset, you're one of the most serious guys I know and not in a bad way, like in a good way, because you, you, you are the one that makes stuff happen. Like when I, when I think of you, I think of someone that's work hard and also play hard. And, you know, obviously you've been in the industry for a long time. What keeps you coming back? Like, do you, do you genuinely like this? Because you talked about how you, you see yourself as kind of middle ground. Why is it something that you want to continue with project management? What keeps you coming back? Well, I do, as you mentioned, like the, the, the people aspect of project management is, is a big part of it. I do really enjoy that, that aspect of it. You know, I, I think of myself as a people person. I like getting to know new people. Um, you know, I've, I've always kind of, I think throughout my life, been pretty good at, um, you know, kind of being a conciliator. And, you know, when there's, when there's disputes, trying to, you know, bring, bring parties to the table and, and help work it out. Um, so I, I like that aspect of it. Um, and you know, it's, it's fun because you, you get to, um, work with a lot of different people. You get to work with different types of projects and you get to see like how uh, a building or a, you know, or an interior office fit out or whatever, how that all comes together. And so it's not something I ever, you know, studied in school for, but it's something I've just learned a ton at you know, just by doing it. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still learning a lot and that's kind of the main thing that's, that's keeping me at it is, you know, I think I have some, I guess, natural, um, maybe like a natural temperament that's, that's pretty well, um, aligned to the, to the role of project manager. Um, and I, but you know, mainly what's keeping me going is just, you know, learning new things and, and, you know, kind of pushing myself into, into new areas where I was like, okay, well, I never went to school for this, but I'm just learning it on the job and applying what I know and uh, getting a positive feedback loop from that. Absolutely. Well, it, it, this, I remember this story that you were telling me about when you started as a project manager, you, you kind of, you were doing accounting before? Yeah. In my previous job, I worked for a general contractor and I, my job title was administration and cost control officer. So I basically did, um, you know, budgetary control, financial control on projects, but I also did a bunch of other stuff for the company. You know, I did the payroll, I did some, um, you know, benefits administration, you know, I did some, some accounting accounts payable, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, but yeah, mainly, uh, project cost control. Well, one theme that I'm seeing from this, from your past roles and also just project management as a whole, the, the value of me being, you know, before I came to JLL, I was very entrepreneurial. It's my main thing. You know, I did crypto, very high risk, high risk industry, entrepreneurship, very high risk industry. But what I've realized from doing project management with you, and maybe you can shed some light on this is, you know, you said seeing a project go from start to finish, seeing it, you know, getting the designers all involved. There's so many pieces to it. Mm -hmm. I see you're in meetings with like eight different people coordinating everything. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like when I throw myself in things, being able to realize that there's so much more that goes into building something, building a company, building an idea out. You need the right people. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to coordinate it. And it honestly, like when I think of project management, and I remember you told me you wear multiple hats. Mm -hmm. Like you have to wear multiple hats. Yeah. And yeah, like we talked about also privately how it makes you a generalist. But at the same time, sometimes when it comes to building everything, you have to almost realize that there's so many different moving pieces. So how do you think that aspect of project management, do you think that's actually an accurate representation? Do you think that project management is an industry where you know, entrepreneurs can come in there, work on project management, see how it's done, see how obviously it depends on the type of project management, but the whole idea of seeing something from beginning to end in understanding all the moving pieces, it's something that is incredibly valuable skill that goes into everything. And then accounting is, is a lot of that doing very focused, very making sure that everything's clean cut, not making mistakes. And yeah. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Um, project management, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a discipline or it's a profession and it's, it's applied in many different industries, right? So we have project managers in, you know, commercial construction. We have project managers in ground up construction. There are project managers in software development. There are project management, uh, project managers in, you know, uh, you know, developing industrial systems, all sorts of different, uh, industries where a project manager can, can end up. But, um, yeah, I think the, one interesting thing that you said there is kind of like seeing all the different moving parts. And then, so one, one thing that I've found to be a really good career growth 
aspect of, of throwing myself into project management was how it requires you to, to see the project holistically. Mm. And one of the main jobs of the, of the project manager is to identify scope gaps. So mm. if, for example, you have um, uh, an electrical, uh, an electrician, right, who's installing, you know, all of the power outlets in, a, in an office, and then you have uh, an audiovisual uh, systems installer. Right. So you could have something where, okay, here's the AV device over here. Here's the power outlet over here. Both of these guys have um, built out their systems according to the designs that they were given. But actually, there's, there's a gap. There needs to be a cable that you know, connects the power from here to here. But nobody put that in the design. So whose job is it to... Um, identify that not at the last minute when the client is, you know, has moved into, into the office and they want to turn on and have their first meeting with right. the CEO. Somebody needs to identify that beforehand. Right. Yeah. And that that's the owner's rep project manager in, in our world. Right. So you need to be able to see, you don't need to, to be an expert in any of these things. I don't need to be a, a trained, you know, ticketed electrician. I don't need to be a, uh, you know, an AV systems expert but I need to know some basics about, well, where do these scopes uh, typically overlap and, and where might you run into some problems of, you know, a gap in scope where it was not part of this, this uh, uh, entity's job to do it. It wasn't part of their design. It wasn't here, but still it needs to be done. So I think that once you, once you've had that experience a couple of times, then you're like, oh, okay, well, I just need to think about everything that needs to happen to make this project a success. And if somebody isn't already assigned with, with a task that I know needs to be done to make the project a success, I need to find out who's going to do that. Yeah. It's probably not going to be me, although sometimes it happens, right? Like you and I were on a, <laughs> on a job site a few weeks ago yeah. and it's like, Okay, well, the health and safety <laughs> officer says, like, as you're talking, yeah. says like, well, okay, well, this... <laughs> this uh, thing can't be plugged into this power bar because it's like too many electrical devices connected and it's a safety issue. And, you know, even though, you know, we didn't necessarily uh, uh, agree that it was posed a safety concern, it's like, okay, well, the, the client is, you know, if they, if they want to do this to align with their health and safety standards, then, of course, we're going to help them do it. Now, whose job is that going to be? Well, you know, we could go and, you know, go get a quote from an electrician to go do it. But, you know, electricians aren't cheap. And, you know, they were already done their work on the job. So it would mean calling them back to site. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's somebody else we could find to do it. Maybe there's somebody within the client's own facilities team if we could find the right person. Yeah. And maybe, but then we said, well, how much work is it? Hour, hour and a half? Maybe Weston and I could just do it. Yeah, so you and, you and I <laughs> so were... So that's what we ended up doing. We're unplugging and plugging devices. We're, yeah. under, we're literally under the, the desks just yeah. for hours just plugging it yeah. in. But it, it's about dropping down and getting your hands dirty too. Yeah, because most of the time as project managers, we're behind a desk or behind a screen. But, you know, we got to be on site. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe, we're, the, we're, maybe we're the people to do it. It's this particular task. Yeah, yeah, well, it's about identifying like where there's uh, something missing. And then trying to understand, well, what's, what's the right way to address it? And, and that's not always the right move. Most of the time, it's not the right move for 
for me as a project manager to say, okay, I'm going to take on this, this task, especially if it's like a physical mm-hmm. task on site. Usually it's, that's not the right move, but you know, in this particular circumstances, you know, it, it was the right move. We got it done. Client is happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it didn't cost them very much. Yeah. It just cost, you know, a couple hours of our time. The, well, the problem was, was logicing out, is this even worth doing? Because we didn't really agree on their assessment. But at the end of the day, you, it needs to get done. Like this, this is something yeah. that's an issue. It needs to get done. What's the fastest possible way? And I remember Clayton came in here and he said, okay, living fast. Let's, let's yeah. get it. Let's get going. We're trying to set up cameras over there. We're trying to move stuff around, get everything set up for the podcast. And Clayton, all about making sure that everything gets done as fast as possible. You're one of the most efficient people I know. Well, it's not the, the, the speed in and of itself is not always the primary thing the, the main thing is to get it done right. So at the end of the day, sometimes, and, and I've, I've learned this over the course of my career through, you know, a number of, number of different roles. I used to try to do all my tasks very fast. Okay. But I got burned a few times by doing that nah. because I was Go moving, I was here. moving too quickly and my productivity was excellent in terms of like the number of tasks I was able to knock out in a, in a day. Um, but what the qual the quality sometimes suffered okay. because I was moving too fast. I wasn't looking at the details. I wasn't, you know, double checking the quality of my work before I passed it on to my supervisor or my teammate or whatever. And so that, that came back to, to bite me a few times. And so I had, I remember one uh, uh, performance review I had. So this was when I was in, in Japan and I was doing curriculum development. So that means like basically writing textbooks and online learning materials for, for people to learn English. And so, uh, yeah, I, I had a, a performance review with my boss, you know, who just, you know, very gently told me like, they, you know, love, love the uh, energy, love the effort, love the productivity, but the quality of the work is, you know, it's not always there, right? And so what I, what I learned from that and, and from my, my next job I had with the, with the general contractor um, is that if you, if you can't, if you are not, especially when you're sort of junior in your career, right, and somebody above you is having to take your work and, and review it, ensure that it's, it's good enough to go live, right. To be presented to a client or whatever. If I'm, if I'm rushing through my process and I'm not catching Mm. and they might seem like they might seem like, Oh, it's not a big deal. It's just a missing piece of punctuation Mm. or something like that. But if the end result is that the person above me, who's, who's checking it, they have to spend their time to correct my mistakes, send it back for revision, all these sorts of things, then it's like, okay, well, now from a, if you look at it from like an economic point of view, you, you could analyze this in all sorts of different ways, but if you just look at it from an economic point of view, right, you, you have somebody who um, is, is more senior, they're getting paid like a higher you know, oh, yeah. salary, so they're spending more of, of their time it would be more uh, from an economic point of view, from the company's bottom line uh, perspective, right? Better to just have, you know, the, the people at the beginning of the production chain, right? 
do the highest quality work that they possibly can so that you're reducing the time of the, the next layer of people who need to, you know, to review that and, and approve it, right? 100%. Well, yeah. do you, okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places we could take that. I'm just going to ask you, do, are you a quality over quantity guy now? Or are you a quantity? Are you more of a middle ground? Or are you more just everything you submit has to be 110%? No, I'm, I'm or are not, you more 90% and you're still no, focused I'm, on moving fast? I'm not a, I'm not a perfectionist. And, and a part of that, I think, is it's a personality thing. Okay. That you, you know, it, it'll change to some extent over time. But I've, I've never been a perfectionist. In fa- and when I was young, I was, I was too far on the other side of just like, just get it done. Good enough is, is fine. And, and, you know, now I'm a lot more um, selective about the approach I take. Um, with stuff that I write, for example, I really like to be, to be clear, to be grammatically correct, to, you know, to not have any, you know, spelling errors, anything like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a balancing act and, and there isn't a right way to do it. If you're always a perfectionist, then you're going to, um, <laughs> you're going to be inefficient, I right? Agree. Because totally. you're, you're going to put way too much totally. effort to make something perfect when all that was needed by your client or by the situation or whatever was just a solution that was good enough, right? But then you invested too much energy. So, but then there's other times where, it just has to be, it has to be the best. It has to be without errors. Wow, yeah. And it, and so part of, you know. How the, do you recognize that? How do you recognize when to, when to put on that hat? When it's no errors or it's, you can make errors. How do yeah, you, how it's, do you distinguish it's that? only, it's only, you only get there with experience, I think. Because it, it totally depends on the situation. It's, it's all, it's all contextual. And so you, you have to have experience with, that type of situation otherwise you won't you won't actually know what the right where to be on that spectrum in terms of perfectionism versus you know just good enough so wow when i met you like you stroke me as someone that never makes mistakes oh that's not the case at all now it seems (laughs) like (laughs) now it seems i kind of met you at this point where you have a ton of experience so now i'm kind of understanding that you didn't always used to be this way it took so many failures, so many mistakes, so many times where you submitted things yeah. and it didn't end up working out or you didn't get the best feedback. So that's what brought you here. So do you think that life, your trajectory, yeah, you've taken, you're in this industry where it's all about risk mitigation, but through that, the reason you're so good at it, cause you're, you're one of the best at what you do. I know that, like I see you work Straight up, like I gotta gas this guy up. This guy is totally <laughs> at work. Everyone that has mentioned Clayton's name at work just says he's a great guy. And I think that goes hand in hand with the work that you do. So when I, he's actually my buddy guy at um, JLL. So it's really sweet. We have a really, um, I would say professional, also personal relationship, which is great. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for that. And that's why he's actually on this podcast right now. So. Yeah, it makes me it makes me happy. But when it comes down to your mitigating risks, like you seem to be somebody, obviously, who have been in so many scenarios. Like I, you sent me your resume before this, by the way. He's done like twenty three 
what, what, what is it, 23 major projects or something like that? Uh, it's it's in the 20s or 30s or something like that. And yeah. just in Vancouver? Um, yeah, mostly greater Vancouver. Um, yeah, pretty well. Pretty much all commercial yeah. real estate too? Um, yeah, I did. When I was working for the general contractor, we did a lot of uh, public sector work. So, um, you know, the one of the main projects I worked on there was high school, Kitsilano High School, not far from here. Kitsilano, yeah. Okay. Um, so did that, and then and then I was brought over to JLL for a project that um, was kind of an extension of uh, the one my previous uh, company had worked on, which is the um, uh, RCMP Forensics Lab. So there is a new like state of the art, you know, um, so one of one of only three in Canada of the top forensics labs, where all of the police services will send their, you know, like blood samples and you know <laughs> all these sorts of things to be analyzed so that was an incredible project to be involved with as as my first one at JLL um you know I, I was in a junior role there just as a you know associate project manager working under a senior project manager and learned a lot from him um and that was the that was the kind of project where it has to be has to be perfect right like we're trying to it's, it's literally life or death right <laughs> do or if die you, if you had if you <laughs> if something was shoddily you know designed or constructed in this lab it literally means that you know the the tests that they do there to determine you know whether somebody's you know innocent of a crime or guilty could be done wrong and it's it's a matter of life and death so being in a room, you know, full of, you know, clients and, and engineers and, and um, uh, builders and other specialists that all kind of got that, that were on the same page about how important it was to do something of the highest quality made a strong impression on me right. as, as my first major project working for JLL. It's like, okay, there's no cutting corners here, right? So cool. It's like... It, it has to be exactly what the client wants. And the, the interesting thing about that project was that from a, from a procurement, from a contracting point of view, that's kind of how it was set up. It wasn't like we're going to give you, you know, X amount of millions of dollars to build, you know, this on this set of drawings that our engineer. No, the, the design team, so the, the architect, all of the engineers, as well as the, the, the general contractor, as well as um, the uh, facility management uh, team that was going to operate this facility under a, I think, 25-year contract. All of that was, it, it was all bundled as one contract. So it basically means you, hey, you team, designer, engineers, uh, general contractor, facility operator, you need to figure out how to build this thing. And we're not telling you exactly how to build it. We're giving you a functional program that says it needs to be like this. This room needs to do this. It's, it's this type of lab. This room needs to do this and so on. But we're not telling you exactly how to build it. It just has to do it and it has to perform to this standard. And if it doesn't, you as the design build team are going to be on the design build operate team, I should say are gonna be on the hook for the cost if anything breaks. So right. even like if a light were to, to go out, within that contract, there's a financial penalty, mm, right? Okay. If, the, if the day goes by and, and uh, the client can't use that 
room because there's a light out. It's like, okay, well, we couldn't do our lab test today because it was dark in that room. Then that would go back to the, to the design build operate team as a, as a financial penalty. So that, that's a huge change in mindset from how mm. construction is usually done where it's like, okay, I take this design, I build how it was designed. If there's anything missing from the design, well, then I'm just going to charge extra because right. you designer forgot to, to put it in, even though I could have told you that, yeah, you need to have power that goes from this outlet on the wall to this AV unit over here. So it, it really, I, I, that was a big impression on me, mm. sort of uh, midway through my career to, to, um, to show me how important it is about how the uh, contracts are set up for, for these large projects, especially if quality is like really at the top of the importance spectrum rather than, you know, cause sometimes it's cost, right? And you, you know, clients, they just want something built quickly and cheaply. Like and the TELUS, like the TELUS. Well, that one, yeah, like that one is, you know, it's a medical facility. So, you know, it needs to be fast, but it also needs to be of a certain quality, uh, you know, because it's a medical facility, right? So you, you always have these trade-offs, right? In, it's, it's part of like a, you know, a triangle in, in project management, right? Like where you can, yeah. So it's quality, quality, quantity, and what else? It's, it's, a qual it's quality, uh, cost and schedule, okay. right? Totally. So you can get, you can <laughs> totally have, you can have two out of these three things, but it's, it's very, very difficult to have all three, right? Cause if you want it to be, um, if you want it to be at the utmost level of quality, that means you're not going to do it fast, right? S same thing. If you want it to be top quality, it's not going to be super cheap. If you want it to be super cheap, either it's going to be low quality and, or it's going to take a lot longer. So you can, it's nearly impossible to have all three of these things. So there's always trade-offs between them. And part of what a, a project manager is doing is helping to guide you know, the, uh, I guess the, the, the owner or the, or the client team in terms of like, well, what's the right decision in each of these cases where you can't have all three. Sometimes you need to compromise on one or, or the other. So what do you do? Right. Is, right. You know, provide advice on that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm curious, this triple, this triple, um, triangle. Yeah. Is this something you created yourself in no, your no, head no. or this is, this, is, like is a, this something you this learned? It's part of standard, yeah, standard project management uh, theory. Okay, yeah. okay. So yeah. throwing a little bit of a school academic little little tidbit in there. So it's a, it, it's the, tri I didn't even learn this, I think. Was this in my training? I, I, I don't know <laughs> I don't if I so. saw this. I don't think so. That's but if you, did, if you studied, for example, for the, the PMP, the project management professional, which is the, the so that's a designation I have as a, as a project manager. That's one of the things in the in the uh, PM theory that you go through is this this triangle and how there's there's always trade offs between these these three corners of the triangle. It may, it makes sense because it's it's hard to have all three. Yeah. And when you started talking about this whole like story and stuff, I just saw the way that you were speaking about when it came to it needs to be this way or it's do or die. You said or you need to do it this way or else you're going to lose money. And just the shift in mindset that taught you yeah. on the last podcast, Jake and I talked about how we're both 
believers in when you go all in on something, you move differently and you'll, you'll almost find a way to get that standard, to make those requests happen by the client. When it really in your head, you believe that, like you said, it's this project was something that had to be a certain way and there was no cutting corners. There was none of that. And I think that when it comes to that, it almost has effect on your brain. When you think like that, you will act differently. And I want to, I'm very curious, is that something that you believe? Do you notice when you, things are different when they really say, hey, this needs to get done this way and you believe it in your head? Like deep down, you believe that if you mess up, you might get fired or something might happen really bad. You might lose a lot of money do you, do you move differently? Do you find yourself almost making decisions differently? And do you, is the quality better? Is the performance better? Does everything take a level up when you uh, adopt that mindset in this scenario or in many other scenarios? Because that's something yeah. we talk about a lot, yeah. the importance of that. Yeah, no, I think it does. Um, and I think one thing that's unique about... Um, uh, about the role that that I'm in, our, our team at, at JLL. So we're we're owners, rep, project managers. So it's 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 not a super common type of role. Most project managers you'll find are people who you know in construction, like they probably work for a general contractor, right? And so they're they're doing their their construction scope. But we as owners, rep, PMs, we have a, a unique role in that we are meant to be the 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 owners, the person who's paying the bill at the end of the day for the entire project meant to be their, their eyes and, and ears and, and voice and everything on Wherever site with the whole team, right? And so in order for us to, to do that effectively, we, we really have to take our clients' concerns to heart. It's not the sort of job where you can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid this much per hour, we charge a client, you know, and I have this list of, of, of tasks that are in my you know, a job description, my contract with the client. And then I just, you know, I just kind of go through and I just do those tasks. And, you know, if, if my, uh, you know, eight, eight hour fee that I've been, you know, allotted for the week, once that's exhausted, I just stop working and, and tell the, you call the client, say, Hey client, I need some more money because so that sort of, cause you can, you can imagine that, that perspective, a lot of people who work on like a, a fee for service basis, right? Like if, you know, a lawyer, for example, I don't mean to throw lawyers under the bus, but you know what I mean? Like you have your retainer that you pay to the lawyer, right? Your, your 2000 bucks or whatever to work on this issue. And once they've worked enough hours to like use up that retainer that they they put the phone down, they put the pencil yeah. down and they, they send you an word. email. They say, Hey, I'm Mr. Not... So-and-so like, please send me, you know, t- top up your retainer so that I can continue working. Yeah. Um, with, with our owner's rep role, we have to like be in the mindset of like what's best for, for the client and, and be communicating that to everybody else that's involved in the team and trying to get them to, to march to the beat of, you know, this one yeah, drum, like let's, we all got to go at this pace in this direction. And, and yeah, so we, we have to adopt that, that mindset. And, and when we don't, if our clients see that, right, they, yeah. they see me, if they're right, we sit in a meeting, for example, and you know, it's, let's say it's with, uh, you know, the general contractor and, you know, they're just, 
you know, they're making a bunch of excuses. They're not sending enough manpower to site to get it done in the right timeline. And if, if, if we as the owners rep PM look like, well, okay, well, that's the GC's problem. Uh, he has a contract with the owner, um, you know, and if they're, they're late, then they won't get paid or whatever. Not really my problem, right? If they see behind your eyes, like, not really my problem, wow. then you're, you're not going to work for that client yeah. again, right? Wow. They have to understand that you always think that their problems are always your problems. Yeah. Wow. It's, yeah. it's putting the client first and it's... Yeah, it's it's really like trying to get into their their mindset about you know if, like if they were here the yeah like you like you have skin in the game yeah. right and 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 we do because if we don't have mm. that level of um, I guess being attuned to the needs of our client and then uh, you know doing everything within our power to to help them deliver on what their vision is for the project, their needs, you know, cost, budget, schedule, all those things. If we don't do that, they will, they'll see it in our eyes. At least a, a savvy one will. And they'll be like, oh, this guy doesn't really, he's not really, you know, representing me here. He's just, you know, working for a paycheck or whatever he's doing, you wow. know? Yeah, that's, that's so, so much how I see project management now. But when I came in, didn't see it like that. I didn't see this relation, this importance of these relationships because the outcome for you to get that returning client, mm -hmm. you have to sometimes take that extra effort. You have to have that mindset because or else some other company, some other person might have that mindset and they'll be able to see it. I like yeah. what you said. They'll see it in your eyes. And that goes back to the relationship side of project management that I think is so unique mm -hmm. and so valuable because at the end of the day, like, I'm a big people person. I'm sure that you say that you love meeting new people and it's part of the job that you love. But at the end of the day, it's putting those people first and it's making sure that they're taken care of and, and you, you have skin in the game. And it's crazy yeah. that we bring this up because 20 minutes before you walked in here and we sat on this podcast, I was on the phone with one of my friends. He wants to be a lawyer too, which I found incredibly funny that you... You threw lawyers under the bus. So shout out to Malik, lawyer. Yeah, throwing them under the bus. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I was talking to him and I said, dude, I think it's really important with the job you have because he's working at a restaurant right now and I can tell he's just doing it for the paycheck. Yeah. And I, can, I call him and I always ask him, hey, are you doing okay? Because the way he responds when I pick up the phone, it's, it's very just not excited. And I always ask him, I say, oh, like, what's up? And I think a lot of that becomes that a lot of that stems from him not having the skin in the game in his work. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any skin in the game. He works a job, gets a paycheck, sure. and he's out. Yeah. And I think that's so important like to have meaning in what you do and have meaning in your work and have the right people around you at, at work. And one thing at JLL, great people. Like yeah. I, yeah, I look at JLL, great people. And I think it starts there. And I think it starts and ends with people and relationships and when it comes down to seeing how you operate and how you do your do your day-to-day -day, mm -hmm. it's making putting people first and that's so interesting so where i would say when you look at individuals and you look at people that you work with is it about making them feel that they're put first and then once you're just looking at them as a returning client 
or do sometimes those relationships foster into friendships and stuff like that? Or do you just look at it as strictly business play? Um, I know that's a very loaded question, but yeah, I, I mean, ask. yeah, I mean, it, it's business. There's, there's a kind of like, I guess, uh, good professional relations that you can have with, um, with your clients, with, um, you know, uh, people from other firms that you collaborate with on, on projects. Um, yeah, where, where it's, it's professional and you, you kind of know that there's, you know, a line there between the professional and personal, but it can be warm. It can be friendly. You can talk about, uh, you could talk about, you know, not just work stuff mm. with them and it's very cordial and it's, and it's really enjoyable. You know, I've had some, some lovely dinners and lunches and things like that yeah. with, with clients. Um, you know, especially like celebrating after a successful project, mm. that's always wonderful. Um, and so, yeah. And especially if you do uh, repeat business with clients over the years and these, these relationships and, uh, you know, a level of trust yeah. develops there, which is what we, what we really want to cultivate. Right. Reputation. We, we, yeah. Um, so it's not, I, I wouldn't quite frame it as, as making people feel good. I would say that what's, what we're doing as owners rep PMs is we're, we're acting in the, what, for what is in the best interest of our clients. Um, we need to be professional always in terms of how we treat people, even, even if it is, uh, you know, basically giving somebody shit for something <laughs> that they, that they should have done. Absolutely. We still need to always be professional. Um, and, and I think that we're in a good position to do that because if you can imagine, okay, the project owner, the, the guy who's like paying the bills and you know, his project is not on time and, uh, you know, he's, he's getting very upset. Right. And he, what his, what he wants to do is go down to the job site and he wants to yell at the superintendent and tell him, you know, what the hell the job's behind schedule. Like you need to get your shit together. But maybe he's not the best person to do that because that, that's not going to help the situation. You yeah. know what I mean? So, uh, so in our role, we, we need to be diplomats, right? Mm. We need to take that frustration that the client is feeling because the, the project's behind schedule or it's over budget or whatever. And we need to communicate that. But we need to do so in a way that doesn't backfire and make the situation worse. Mm, it yeah. has to be civil. Yeah. It has to be uh, to the point. It can't be exaggerations. It can't be um, you know, unsubstantiated hearsay. It has to be based on facts. It has to be truthful, uh, but it has to be direct and pointed uh, enough so that the, you know, that the person who's, who's receiving that feedback is like, oh, okay, I see that this is an issue, right? Uh, and so there's there's a, a skill to be developed in in this in this role as well as many other roles, but um, of of kind of being able to to give that sort of criticism in a way that um, it's it's received as as well as possible, but also you know actioned appropriately, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and one thing that you brought up earlier is is you're very careful with your language. And I, is that from project management? Because you know you have to be careful with your language. You have to say it in the way. I had a, a mentor of mine, Dylan Rockaway. Shout out to Dylan Rockaway. Great guy. Dylan Rockaway, he always told me, I would come to him, and there would be scenarios where, I'll be honest, I, didn't, I meant good intention, but the way that I handled it 
was perceived as something totally different, which was actually going mm -hmm. on. And Dylan, I'll never forget this. He always told me, Weston, you can pretty much say anything, pretty much anything, but it's the way you do it. And you have to understand the situation in the way that you want to come across or you need to come across to get the outcome you need. That really stuck with me. And I, I think when you're talking about that, that really hit on a nugget. Is that what you learned from doing the project management? I, is that why you're careful with your language? I, is because of that? Because you want to make sure that people interpret it the right way? I, I would say I learned that earlier. So I had a, I had a previous career, as I alluded to, doing uh, English language teaching oh. and, and uh, curriculum development. And um, I also worked for like a, a TV show, magazine, you know, radio show, kind of, you know, uh, editing articles and doing broadcasting and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so, so that, that's in the field of, okay, trying to teach people in, so this was in Japan and Taiwan, how to speak English living over there oh, and then so and learning learning mandarin and and learning some japanese um and and having that kind of cross-cultural experience it it really brought it home for me that you can you can say what you want and you can have whatever intent behind it it's <laughs> how the other person interprets that is i i won't say it's hard to predict but it's not it's language, even, even for people who speak the same native language is, is fraught with all sorts of difficulties of trying to interpret mm. the meaning that somebody is, is conveying. So, um, you know, you could get into a whole academic thing. I studied a little bit of linguistics in university and, and found this kind of thing fascinating. Um, but you can never assume that what you're saying is going to be interpreted according to the intention that you wanted it to. You can, you can never be 100% certain of that, but recognizing how difficult that is, uh, it will help you to you know, choose your words wisely, um, to do all sorts of things. You know, there's all sorts of nonverbal yeah. things that you and can do about, about, it, yeah. Yeah, about communicating your message. Um, but you know, I particularly think about doing things like writing emails, right? Because in an in a email, you don't have the context of, you know, the person's facial cues or tone of voice or any of that. So you got to be super. And it's, and it's also you have like a record there that's like if it, you know, like years later, somebody can too. come back, dig up your email, say, what did Clayton say about this? Um, so you got to be really careful when you when you write. So that I would say I, I learned that from doing the, the, the language education, editing a lot. Wow. Like a, a big part of what I did was like editing articles for this you know, for this magazine. And so you, you learn how to be really sharp on, you know, uh, spelling punctuation and, and how that all conveys a meaning, like even a misplaced Super comma, right. Can really change the meaning of a sentence Absolutely. if you put it before this word or after this word. And so, yeah, you, you gotta be aware of all that. And I'm just so surprised you're not a perfectionist after <laughs> you sell this and you're talking, okay, this one comma can change everything. Yeah. And then earlier you said, you're not a perfectionist. Me, when I, and I 100% agree, like sometimes I hyperanalyze, especially when I'm texting people, because like you talked about, I don't see their facial expressions. I don't know their tone of voice. I don't know how they said what they said previous message. 
So I just try to respond and sometimes it comes into hyperanalyzing. But I do that because I think that it's inc incredibly important. What you said really hit home with me was you can never be 100% certain and that's why you have to be careful with what you say and how you say it. Yeah. But you said you weren't a perfectionist and you studied linguistics, accounting, project management. These are all things where I think you've had to wear the hat of perfectionism. But why, why isn't that part of your personality now? Do you think life is not meant to be that way? Uh, I'm getting pretty, pretty deep with that, but I, I really want to know because linguistics. Well, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll bring it back to the theme of the, of the podcast, oh, okay. right? Living, living fast, right? Okay. You have a limited amount of time. Mm, and, and that's okay. the constraint on perfectionism is time, right? Wow. And, you know, if time were unlimited, if, you know, I, if there was never going to be a day where I passed from this world and I could just spend as much time on things as I needed to, to always get them right, then sure, I'd be a perfectionist. But I realize the constraints of time, right? Like I, I, rea I realize my own mortality. I realize there's only a certain number of hours in the day. And there are many, many competing demands for, for a person's time, even within a job, right? Let alone when you compare, you know, your working life to, you know, the rest of your life. Um, so for example, at work, right? The last, well, you know, the last like <laughs> two months, basically I've been incredibly busy, you know, trying to, trying to juggle, um, a, a number of, uh, challenging fast moving projects. And normally I like my emails to be tidy. I like there to be a period at the end of every sentence and all that sort of thing. Well, I've been known over the last several weeks to fire out some emails without any polite, you know, hi person's name thank you at the end just like firing out emails rapid fire with limited punctuation um that are very to the point they're not perfect though but that sometimes that's what you need to do if you have to send out you know 100 emails in the day they're not all going to be perfectly you know punctuation checked right because it's you have to balance that thing of perfectionism versus it just needs to be good enough in order to meet, you know, the constraints is like back to that triangle, right? If, if the, if, if things have to move fast, you know, sometimes you got to make some little compromises on quality. Can't break anything too major, but you know, maybe the email is a bit more direct than I would like it to sound, but it conveys the point and it's clear. So good enough. Hit send. So have you, wow, that, 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 the fact that you linked it to time, uh, we, we talked about it on the last podcast with Jake, mm. the most important asset is your time. You're here right now. I'm here right now. We're, we're giving these people our time. We're giving these people our most valuable asset, in my opinion. And when you talked about that, understanding that, you know, life is short. You can't always be a perfectionist with everything. But there's moments in life where you almost have to sometimes with certain things. Yeah. And it's been hard for me personally because I'm a, I'm a perfectionist with a lot of things that I do, but also because I'm on extreme ends, sometimes like I'm a hyper perfectionist and then, you know, I'm not at mm -hmm. all. And I don't find that middle where I think from what I'm getting from this conversation is through experience, you've realized when through those tons of years of doing this, you realize, okay, I can miss a period. I can miss a thank you for this message. 
I can do this because you've built up this reputation, because you've been consistent for how many years and you understand that this is not going to be the be all and end all. But you also recognize, like you said with your other stories, when you do need to be like that, when you do not have to make mistakes. Yeah. And do you think that is all, do you think that's an accurate representation of you as an individual? It just comes down to experience with that and understanding where you need. And when did you come to this realization that, did, were you always think this way where, you know, life's short, you only have so much time and sometimes you need to live life a little faster. You're going on a trip on su- Sunday. Where are you yeah. going again? Uh, Japan and Taiwan. Japan and Taiwan. Yeah, going, going back to visit where I, where I lived and spend some time with my kids and my in-laws in Japan. And that, is that something you're going to go into and you're going to bring your, your, maybe not perfectionism, but you're going to take it very seriously or is that something no. that... No, I'm just going to go have fun. You know? I've got a few things planned. I've got like a bucket list. Um, there's a lot of, it's a short trip, like 11 days. So a bucket list. Yeah. Okay. I've got a, uh, a bunch of things I want to, places I want to see, people I want to visit, you know, uh, food I want to eat, food. all those sorts no of things. Breakfast. <laughs> no breakfast. No breakfast. I can eat meal three day. meals a day Whoa. for sure. For sure. <laughs> to eat all the things on my bucket list. Oh yeah. I got to eat like at least two meals a day. Cold showers. <laughs> Cold showers. Cold showers will be happening yeah. for sure. Awesome. Cause it'll be like 35 degrees and humid every day yeah i've been trying to convert clayton over the last month or two to pick up on some some biohacking things that well i I I have i i I do believe that like skipping a meal once in a while i I don't think i can do the one meal a day but yeah i've I've been skipping breakfast maybe about like three days a week probably average over the last but it's about time month or so it it, it all comes down to time and and I found it to be a good time saving, right? Yeah. Like I'm able, I'm most productive in the morning, like right when I wake up, you know, if I'm working from home, I'll, you know, basically grab a cup of coffee, hop straight on the computer and, and get to it. Or, you know, I'll hop on my bike, have a ride to the office and, uh, you know, grab a coffee there and just get going. And I can get a lot done in that window before, you know, 1130 noon. Yeah. And I, and I eat something. So yeah, no, I've, I've, I've taken that part of what you've advised to heart um trying to do the one meal a day i it's probably a bit of a stretch for me it's well intentioned though and it comes down to the reason why i took that on is it comes back to what you were saying about time i've realized that the moments we remember it's not sending those emails it's not it's not about going about my life and eating eating three meals a day it's about moments like this having this talk with you. It's about going to Japan with your family. Mm-hmm. It's about that. It's about people. It's spending time, having great conversation, having great moments. And sometimes food's involved. That's great. But I look at it from a very bird's eye view and I see over the span of my life, the amount of time, I believe we can only make a certain amount of good decisions in the day that go against our already habits. And there's actually data to back this. Mm where when you wake up, you can only make a certain amount of decisions and then you get decision fatigue and you go back into what your habits are already. And if your habits are unreal, that's great. 
you can eat three meals or whatever. But if your habits are not that good mm. and you're wasting those decisions on what you're going to wear the next day or the food you're going to eat, because a lot of people that don't eat well, they have a habit of eating poorly, right? So they'll go in and they'll eat breakfast and they'll eat pizza or whatever, whatever they like. Mm-hmm. And, but they want to eat healthy. They come to me, Weston, I want to eat better. But it's so hard to do that when you have that habit. And I think when it came down to eating one meal a day for me, it was about keeping those good decisions for making a good decision, like a decision like this to have you on this podcast. I can make better decisions because this is not a habit of mine to do these podcasts yet. It's not a habit of mine to go to LA for a weekend. It's not a habit of mine to do things, to have conversations with friends consistently enough. And those are things that I want to do. That's my identity. It's all about people. And food just didn't align with that. So my thing, it just saved me time because how much time and how much decision making goes into what I eat, mm. it's way too much. So it actually came so extreme where I said, okay, I'm only eating meat. Like I'm only eating meat. I send them pictures every day to keep me accountable. Yeah. And the reason why I share this with you is because I want you to not only have more energy because it does help with more energy because you burn ketones instead of carbohydrates, but also it saves you decisions to Focus on the stuff that actually matters. But if food matters to you, eat five meals a day. Eat ten meals a day. Well, this yeah, this is maybe where we're different. Is mm, is it yeah. really is it really does right? And so you know, there's of course many many different uh, ideas people have about nutrition, and you know, changes over time, and there's fads and all these sorts of things. But the thing that I'm uh, that I have set as my one of my goals, like at the beginning of the year, what I want to do for food is I want to eat a a greater diversity of plant foods. Mm. And so I, I, I had already been eating a pretty good diversity, but I want to like continue expand, to expand yeah. that. Cause I, what I believe is like that there's, there's a lot of nutrients. There may not be necessarily the science to back this up yet to say, okay, well this uh, plant has this uh, healthy thing in it that you need to have at this frequency. Like our level of science hasn't quite got down to that level of detail, but it's starting to get there. Right. And so I think, you know, the way humans evolved over time was eating, you know, in most parts of the world, you know, Arctic, no, not so much, right? It's animal, <laughs> animal, uh, animal it, based diet there, it's, right? It's my, but, it's my diet. <laughs> but like in most parts of the world, right? Like there, there's a lot of foraging, just like, you know, people over, you know, millennia, just like putting plants in their mouths and seeing if it made them sick or if they could digest it or, or not. And so we're, we're used to, having that kind of variety, you, you know, you still need a source of protein and you still need like fats and things. But I think that there's probably a lot of, um, uh, you know, phytonutrients and, and minerals and, and all sorts of things in these various plant foods that within our current, you know, typical Western diet, which is, you know, it's, of course it's heavily, you know, carb based. There's a lot of problems with it, but you know, too, too many like, uh, you know, seed industrial oils. seed oils, seed oils and, you know, uh, too much white flour and, and things like that. But one of the, one of the other problems with it, I believe is that, um, that, that wide variety of plants has kind of been narrowed down. So even in the supermarket, you know, it's, it tends to be the same sort of stuff. It's, you know, it's, tomatoes and it's and it's cucumbers you know like of a a certain you know couple of varieties of tomatoes and and so i think that our diet 
is, you know, probably for most people, like the variety of fruits and vegetables they eat, you know, you could probably count them on like two or three hands yeah. typically, yeah. right? Like you might have 15 things that you eat, you know, regularly on some basis. Whereas I think it should be like dozens. I think it should be like closer to a hundred you have as like what you would eat in a typical week because there might be some unique nutrients that are in, I don't know, chives, for example, <laughs> right? Or beets, beets or whatever, you know, that people don't necessarily eat all the time because it's like, okay, well, you order a pizza. What's usually on a pizza? Well, it's like tomatoes and onions and mushrooms, right? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a goal that I set. And so breakfast is one of the ways that I do that when I eat breakfast. I get, you know, some yogurt and I throw in some banana or you know, uh, salmon berries or blackberries and then, uh, like a muesli granola that I make that has like, it has like 25 different types of seeds, nuts, dried fruits in it. So I'm getting, I'm getting that variety. So it's, I do like eating breakfast, but I agree. I, I skip it, you know, a few times a week because it just allows me to not have to even think about it and yeah. just get right to, get right to work. Yeah. Well, it, it comes down to what's important to you. Like if you want to, I remember I had a conversation with one of my, a uh, girl that I was seeing and she, she got really like, oh, you don't eat breakfast. I don't eat breakfast either. And then I said, oh, that's great. And she, she said, oh, well, why don't you eat breakfast? And I, I and I went off on my tangent. You've heard it. Mm -hmm. And she got so emotionally invested in it because I think it was a lot different from what she she said I only don't eat breakfast because I don't have time to eat breakfast but if I could like I want to mm. but here's the thing I don't even want to mm -hmm. so yeah. with Jake when I had Jake on one thing that he really hit home was he read this book and it was about identity who you want to be and if you're somebody who wants to try the most exotic foods in the world you should be eating as much of different variety as you can and getting as many nutrients if you want to test that mm -hmm. if you want to use that those decisions making good decisions like making those decisions for something else like for example starting a podcast having guests on that's the identity that i want to have so i i don't want to waste those good decisions in the day on what i eat but some people might want that as part of their identity that they eat exotic food or they eat breakfast or they eat three meals a day. Mm -hmm. So they should do that. And they, I'm not saying don't do that. My thing is just offering the opposing view and saying, maybe if you try this, you will like this 10 times better. Yeah. And maybe you try it and you don't like it at all. Then yeah, go back a, to what you do. It's a question of like, is this habit actually serving you? Yeah, it's exactly. asking that question. Yeah. Does this habit actually serve you? And that's why I love yeah. our relationship because you think one way, I usually think the other way and we find some middle thing. I've tried things that you've told me, you've tried things that I've told you. Got him to invest in Keys Token. Uh, well, how much did you buy, 20 bucks? <laughs> Not that much, yeah. 30 bucks or 20 30 bucks. 30 bucks. Yeah. Well, if key, key, yeah. shout out to Nima, shout out to the Keys guys. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting with Keys with it's, it's, real estate related, but it's metaverse. So yeah. it's totally the opposing because this is the physical side. And then we get into the digital side, which is really cool. So that goes back to, yeah. you know, the opposing views we have and kind of finding ways to 
maybe push people a little bit outside their comfort zone, you know, push people to try stuff they haven't tried. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they're not, those two worlds are not necessarily opposed. I mean, um, so we had that, that lunch and learn this yeah. week, right. Um, with the, with the guy from the, the point cloud scanning. And so, yeah, he talked about VDC virtual design and construction is sort of an emerging area of yeah, the whole construction industry. And he didn't get too much into it, but you can see how those type of, uh, technologies, uh, can help with the, with the design process and building a virtual model, particularly, particularly for like ground up buildings, um, you know, building a virtual model of the building and, you know, tweaking that rather than, you know, physically building it and then, then trying to tweak things is much, yeah. much harder, much more costly. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's, there's a kind of, uh, 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 I guess a harmony that can happen there, there, you know, this idea of, you know, um, keys and, and meta mansions and the metaverse and, and virtual real estate. Um, I think they're going to start to overlap more these worlds. Um, it's just, I think it's a question of, uh, when it comes to investing in something, right? Like you have some people that are like, no, it's gotta be, it's gotta be brick and mortar. And other people are like, okay, I could take a chance on, you know, putting my money into a digital asset and then, you know, just seeing yeah, where it goes. goes. Yeah. Well, risk and risk and return. My, my thing with the metaverse is I'm not the most intelligent guy in the world. And I know that. And you, are also not the most intelligent person in the world. I will readily admit that. You know that. <laughs> but I do know that the top companies in the world try their absolute best to hire the most intelligent people in the mm -hmm. world. And when I don't know where things are headed, a common thing that I turn to is, what are the top companies doing? Okay, Apple just came out with a VR headset. Okay, Facebook just changed their name to Meta. Microsoft is working on, on metaverse integration. Mm -hmm. All these companies, top companies in the world, are putting a lot of investment in the metaverse. And people say, okay, their stock is down X percent. Keys is down 90%. But right now, the metaverse is not here. But it's an investment for the future. They didn't mm -hmm. change their, meta, their name to meta to have their name meta for one year, two years. Right. They're looking 10, 20, 30 years in the future. And I remember Nima Keelid, shout out to Nima. His number one saying was always cost nothing to pay attention. It costs nothing. So when I finished at Keys, I took that with me. Where, where is the attention? Attention's at a, on AI right now. Attention's not on metaverse. Mm -hmm. But where is the attention going to go? And a big reason, a big way that I figure that out, at least in my own head, and I don't know if you feel this the same way, I look at what are the top companies looking at? What are they focused on? What investments are they making? Why are they making those investments? And if it starts to make sense for me, because the metaverse is so hard to wrap your head around. The idea of it is sexy. Metaverse. Oh, I can go on virtual mansions. I can go on virtual dates. I can have virtual parties. I can have throw virtual events. There's all these integrations, but it's not tangible. 
So mm -hmm. people get lost in that. But the top companies are obviously focusing on it. And my thing is figuring out why. My thing is figuring out where things are going to go. And I think with keys, when I look at keys, digital real estate is something that's so interesting because it's infinitely scalable. And it's about getting people to pay attention to that certain metaverse because whoever gets the metaverse right, they're going to make a lot of money. There's going to be a lot of different metaverse. The metaverse, I don't see it as a singular place. Mm -hmm. I see it as a multi, there's hundreds of metaverses around the world. Couple are going to do really, really well. Yeah. A lot like, are going to fail. Like most new products. Yeah. And it's who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna figure out where the attention's going to be in 10 years. Who's going to get it right? It all comes mm -hmm. down to that. And obviously, when I showed you Meta Mansions and Keys, you, you saw it and you were like, this is cool. This is yeah. different. It's unique. But obviously, you've been in, in, a in the physical brick and mortar commercial real estate industry for years. Is it something that you believe that personally where in 10, 20 years, do you see the virtual real estate industry being something huge? Or do you think people are going to stick to what, what they know in the commercial? Because you, you even are opening up a door that's worked in this industry for over 13 years. So that's interesting to me too, because that's what I said to people at Keys is like, how can we get older, more senior people to pay attention? Because it, it, it's hard to make sense of it. Is this something that is starting to make sense to you in any, any shape or form? Well, I think that there are some real problems, uh, especially in this part of the world, with you know uh, physical real estate. The main one being it's so damn costly, right? Yeah. So for for people to get into the market, um, you know, is is really tough. Uh, and so that um, you know, and and I could talk a lot about you know why why I understand that to be and and what some potential fixes for that might be. But um, let's just take it for now that this is a problem that isn't going to be fixed anytime soon. Real estate in, in Vancouver and, and this part of the world is going to continue to get uh, less affordable. Uh, people are going to be living in, in smaller spaces and paying more money for them. So it, it presents an opportunity because a lot of people are dissatisfied and there's a lot of money on the table, right? For if some new approach to, let's just call it, like living or habitating if someone can innovate in this realm and you know they'll they'll never be able to provide you know online something that is you know physical and tangible but what people are looking for when they're seeking out um a place to live a community it's more than just the the physical dirt on the on the ground and the square footage of it right they're looking for relationships with other people they're looking for uh an identity a place yeah. to call home they're looking for um opportunities uh in terms of proximity to things that they value whether that's you know recreation or, or shopping or friends and family or i don't know concerts and entertainment now many of those things in a properly constructed you know uh, digital universe, many of those human desires could be fulfilled yeah. once, um, 
uh, yeah, once innovators can can figure out how to how to deliver that in a format uh, that is actually convincing enough to yeah. people where they feel like oh, okay, so like instead of so people aren't going to stop living in physical dwellings, but maybe instead of you know buying the the cottage, right? Because that was a, a dream of like you know like my parents' generation, right? Okay, you get the cottage in the woods, and that's, so that's where you go away to escape on the long weekend, and you know, kind of get away from it all. Well, maybe the next version of you know buying the cottage by the lake that we see in the twenty first century is it's going to be something virtual. Yeah. So, so I'm dying. <laughs> I'm just uh, my my breath is. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a swig of water, but. <sighs> That. Can I add one more thing? To yeah, that? go ahead. Yeah, okay. go ahead. So, what, an interesting uh, a project, or, or a number of different projects now that I'm seeing that that are uh, connecting this physical real estate and community building um, with blockchain technology and sort of the idea of decentralization and the idea of. Um, I guess governing communities in like a non-hierarchical way. Uh, there's some really interesting projects in that regard. So, like one of them is um, one of them is called uh, Kift, I believe the name is, and it's the idea of like um, it's van, hashtag van life. So, <laughs> so van it's for life. people who have who have like their their little you know camper van or whatever their their uh, VW bus or what have you, um, you know, a small dwelling on, on wheels, but it's, it's kind of too small. Um, so they, they want to have somewhere, you know, to park it and, and to live. Um, so how can people like this, that, you know, they, they, they own the van, they like to hang out with other people who own vans, uh, how do they coordinate as a community to, to live together right like gets they could be dispersed all over the continent right yeah. um not everybody living in a van is not for everybody right so Absolutely. it's 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 Absolutely. relatively rare but how do these like-minded people coordinate with one another to basically have an optimal environment to come together well this is where blockchain makes it really interesting right you could buy basically a share of ownership in some kind of digital asset and that ownership entitles you to make decisions within the community, right? You get a, a voting share that's proportional to the share of the, you know, community or organization or whatever that you've purchased, you know, represented in tokens that are, you know, transferable to other people and, and have this great functionality through blockchain. And then uh, members of the community can put forward proposals you know, the, the members of the community vote with their tokens on those proposals. And so the proposal could be, well, there's this great plot of land out in the Fraser Valley. We think it would be an ideal place to have like, you know, we'll, we'll build like a communal kitchen there and we'll, we'll have like garden beds so people can have a garden there and everybody can come with their vans and stay. And, you know, this is how much you're going to pay to stay there. And, so there's all, all this incredible innovation that's happening through this new technology that allows people to, um, yeah, to coordinate with one another. But the, the interesting thing is it's kind of non-hierarchical, right? You buy into it 
and then it's like the skin in the game and your vote is based on, well, how much of my own money did I put? I'm not the boss, but I get a proportional say according to how much skin I, I put in this communal game. So, so cool. I have to ask your opinion on something yeah. that I haven't brought up on the podcast yet. It's an idea that I got told about a year ago and I've mentioned it to you one time at, uh, at work. And it's so interesting to me and it's, it's kind of in line with what you're saying about voting, about getting share and you have some type of ownership or, or something like that. And it's so cool. So the company's called Liquid. It was started by my, two of my close friends. Shout out to Connor Gill. Shout out to Jaden Bloom. It's one of the coolest ideas I have ever seen. Cooler than keys. I think it's the future because it's almost a. We've talked about throughout this podcast about your more middle. I'm extreme. Well, this is this is very middle. This is very physical and digital side using blockchain technology and integrating it to physical assets. And I think you're gonna mm. find it really cool. And I mm. want to get your take on this. So essentially, what it is, you can go ahead. Anyone that has a lot of money, we've talked about how real estate prices are going up. People are going to be paying less money for, or more money for less space mm -hmm. because real estate market is not being friendly lately and people are not liking it, especially in Vancouver. But this offers an opportunity for people to invest in real estate, invest in properties, invest in Lamborghinis, invest in high value assets, Rolexes. These are physical assets that mm -hmm. gain value over time yeah. with a small part of a small portion of money. If I have a thousand dollars, if I have $500, because yeah. people are not going to have a lot of money as the economy continues the way they're going to go. They're not gonna have a lot of free cash. So in terms of opportunity for, to get into these assets and investing in these assets, it's gonna be very difficult. But liquid, essentially anyone can come into the marketplace and buy a fractional ownership mm -hmm. of that asset. For example, I have a Lamborghini Urus. I, and then my friend goes on Get Liquid, he invests $1,000. He owns, let's say 3% of that Lamborghini Urus and he gets sent to it as an NFT, a non-fungible token. And that is proof of ownership. And the beauty of it, if that value of the asset goes up, say 30%, Lamborghini prices are through the roof, then his 3% his share goes up 30% and he can sell it on our marketplace for 30% more in value, which I think is so cool and offers so much opportunity for individuals to come in and get portions of assets that are not obtainable if you're not, say, an institutional investor, if you don't have a lot of capital yeah. and you own partial ownership. And then the coolest part is you, depending on the amount of ownership you have, you can essentially come on and if there'll be milestones, they're building this out right now. There's going to be milestones where if you own, say, 20% for you can take a week, you have a week where you can take it out for free. Mm -hmm. So you get yeah. benefits right. too. So it incentivizes ownership right. and you get higher APY. And the coolest part, every month, um, 
they are going to get dividends every monthly, monthly dividends, which is very rare mm -hmm. with these assets. Super, super cool. I think it's a future because it's linking something that older generations like yourself understand physical assets. Mm -hmm. The digital side is hard for people with absurd amount of money. Yeah, young people have money, but the people, old money is where the big investors are. The people that are 50, 60 and have all the money to invest. Those are the people that you want to appeal to because they're, the, they're most of the big players nowadays. And with the metaverse, it's hard to get funding because a lot of the older people don't understand it because it's so new. But this, all you have to do is make them understand blockchain in terms of you know, ownership, in terms of decentralization, but then linking it to something that they already understand, which yeah. is physical assets yeah. and investing in that and having that linking it with blockchain technology, which I think is game-changing in terms of getting investments. I think it's game-changing in creating attention, getting people to pay attention. And this idea has been thrown around a lot of linking it to physical assets. Connor and Jaden are definitely not the first people to think of this, yeah, but they're the first people to create the infrastructure and actually make it go to market, which is super exciting. They're first to market. And I think it's going to be one of the biggest companies in the world. And that is why I, I do have a stake involved in it. I have skin in the game. And yeah, like I just want to get your opinion on it. I, I make my decisions on people and product. Connor and Jaden, two of the most absolute stand-up guys I know. I worked with them, spent a ton of time with them. These are guys that are genuine good people and they genuinely have great ideas. And people are there. And then the product, I just talked a little bit about the product. There is more. If you guys want to find out more, go to getliquid.io and the first $100 is on us if you want to get involved. So it's a very exciting opportunity. But Clayton, I'll pass it over to you to get your opinion on this because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think it is an exciting new frontier of, uh, yeah, like uh, assets, like uh, a new way to, to represent ownership of, of physical assets. And of course, what's driving this, this trend, and you know, I, ha I have seen... Uh, some other experience, maybe get like is the first one to actually do the combination of, you know, real estate, you know, luxury automobiles and, and these various asset classes. I've definitely seen um, uh, some ventures that are up and running as far as uh, fractional, just fractional real estate ownership. Um, so it's, it's been around a, f a few years, but it's still kind of a new frontier. Um, I think yeah, what, what's driving it, it, which is important to, to keep in mind, and I, and I think it's a problem that's also not going away anytime soon, is inflation, right? Mm -hmm. So inflation is, is literally uh, uh, governments printing more dollars, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, since, since 2020, COVID, there's been, you know, massive amount of money printing. I mean, we're talking about in the, in the U.S., you know, many, many trillions of, of dollars. And so you've got all these uh, additional dollars chasing after fewer physical goods, yeah. actual physical, whether they're consumer goods or uh, assets in the real world and, and driving up the price of those uh, scarce physical assets. And I think where those physical assets continue to have so much appeal vis-a-vis you know, digital assets is, you know, digital assets in theory are, uh, 
unlimited. Now you have technologies such as NFT that kind of um, put the bounds on, uh, they put bounds of scarcity on a particular item. Say only one person can own this particular NFT. But in theory, any, anything that you can imagine can be created, more of them can be created in some kind of a virtual world. That's not the case with the physical asset. There's limitations. Like, yes, you could manufacture a billion Lamborghinis, but you would need a crazy, <laughs> you need a crazy factory to be able to do that. And nobody has that kind of capital to build that. And there's not the demand for it. So, so you have these, these natural limitations. So inflation, I, I, you know, unless everybody switches to, you know, cryptocurrency for their medium of, ex of exchange, but I don't see that happening uh, overnight. I, I see, I, I see the government coming out with a crypto themselves to control it so they can see where all the money goes. But that's a, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Let's continue with this one, but wanted to add that, add that in there. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you have more dollars chasing after fewer scarce goods. And so this, uh, any sort of a, uh, a project that links, you know, how do you, how do you reckon a physical ownership of a physical asset in a, in a fractional way yeah. to allow more people to have a piece of that asset? Uh, because, you know, this, well, this happened big time uh, after the, like, 2008, 2009, you know, housing bubble crash. You saw this massive flight by those who had money and mm. there were people who had money and there was massive money printing going on there and there were people who were sort of like had their hands out at that that money printing tap and were and were getting the value of those dollars what were they putting those dollars into that they thought would hold value while you know this this financial storm raged it was things like uh rare artwork you know collectibles uh, classic automobiles, things like that. But mo many of those assets, they're just out of reach for regular people, right? Awesome. You got to have, you got to have at least, you know, $20,000, $100,000 to even buy the cheapest assets in those, in those kind of classes. But the fractional ownership that it changes all that and, and kind of democratizes it and, and opens it up to, to many people of limited means. And so that's really exciting. And I've, you know, so I'm, I'm all for those projects that do it. Now the, the, the issue though is that for things like, okay, let's take a car for example, okay? The, let's take the Lamborghini fractional ownership example and walk that through. Okay, so there's, there's digital ownership that's represented on the blockchain, but at any given time, there's one guy who has it in his garage. And what if he decides to go and hop in that car, drive it across the border and sell it to somebody for cash? Who's going, to, who's going to police that? You know what I mean? It's across international borders. You know, the, the conventional police forces don't want to get involved. You know, everybody in theory on the blockchain, they still own it. But that Lamborghini is now in Mexico being driven by a guy who runs a cartel. So that's a good like, point. <laughs> so what do you do about that? Same, same with real estate, right? Like um, if we have a conventional system right, for a legacy system for recognizing ownership of real estate. It's called the land office, right? The government op operates it. They have records whose name is on title. When you, right, when you buy a, a property, you have to have 
you know, lawyers and real estate agents and all these people draw up all this paperwork to do the actual transfer of title. You pay a big tax on that, you know, two or three percent. The government takes their big cut. So that's the legacy system. Now, blockchain would be a different uh, system of, of uh, recognizing property title. But okay, you can build that, but it doesn't mean that the legacy system goes away. So then how do you make the two uh, reflect one another? Right. Like when you've purchased this asset on, on the blockchain, um, how is that actually recognized on the property title? So something in the, in the uh, smart laws- Smart contract, it could be smart contract too. Yes, but you would have to have whatever the government uh, entity is that, that governs land title in that jurisdiction, usually a state or a province, right? Or it could be a municipality. How do you get them to recognize it? Because if they don't, if they're not willing to recognize it, then here's my you know risk <laughs> risk management brain saying, okay, well you could have this great asset you know on paper or you know not even on paper, right? It's on it's on the blockchain that says you own it. But what if when when it comes down to brass tax, you don't actually own it, right? You go to like try to uh, get a tenant out of there, right? Because you've, okay, it's working, you know, tenant is paying money. Now this tenant has become a bad tenant and now we actually need to physically uh, kick them out, yeah. right? Maybe maybe the tenant is actually somebody who owns a small portion of the of the token. And he says, oh no, I'm, I'm a legit owner and I'm just, you know, I, I have my, I own it on the blockchain. And the, you know, so somebody calls the, the you know, um, the, the the, the land title office to check and it's like, oh, well, actually, yeah, somehow this guy managed to get his name on title. And so according to, you know, the province of British Columbia, this guy is the, is the owner of this, this asset and everybody else is like SOL. Maybe he's going to decide to sell that to somebody else. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that there's some, there's some challenges there to get it worked out. Now there are places that are doing it. I've heard that, um, I believe it's Montana has actually uh, amended their laws to recognize um, uh, what is it? It's it's to to kind of recognize legal entities that have uh, smart contracts as their um, like legal basis of incorporation. Yeah, right. And, and to, to show who they're. Yeah, so there's, there is some interesting stuff happening, uh, mostly I would say probably south of the border, maybe some places overseas. Um, and I would love to see more of that in Canada to kind of open up this really interesting frontier for people here. I, I'm not sure that it's gonna be in, in Canada. I think it's mainly US right now. Um, but what, what, one, one thing that I did wanna to mention too, I, I am not legal, I, I have, canceled my business law course at solder like three times because i keep putting it off so law stuff is something that i am not very knowledgeable on but i do know that connor and Jaden have done their due diligence and many of the team members have also done due diligence and they they have looked into it and they know what they can and can't do and it's very clean cut and one thing that i will also mention that they do have a guarantee that they'll buy back their that asset. So the risk, there is some risk mitigation that they do offer. I am not totally versed. Like I don't know all the info. So I don't want to go and, and spread misinformation. So I'll just say DYOR, DYOR. But I yeah, do know there's a ton of risk mitigation 
that they have implemented and they have a ton of experience. So I know that these guys, they're all in players and they really go into what they believe in and they'll find a way to make it happen and they'll find a way to make it one of the most successful companies in the world. So I'll leave it at that. And I think that one more thing with attention, where's the attention going to go? Like one thing with this conversation that we've gotten is we see this blockchain stuff working. We see the metaverse somewhat working. There are all these, you know, issues, boundaries, laws that people don't know how it's really going to work out. Mm -hmm. And I, I brought up earlier with meta, the person that gets the metaverse right is going to make a lot of money, right? The person that gets this fractional ownership right is going to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The person that gets these new ideas, this AI trend, right, is going to make a lot of money. Mm And a lot of it is having the mindset, okay, when you're, and I said this on the last one, when you're skiing down a mountain and you're going through the trees, if you're looking at a tree, you're going to hit a tree. My question is, how can I find the best people, the best skiers that always focus on getting around the trees and figuring out a way how to get out of the trees so we're just skiing down the mountain and being successful? So I think the people that do that the people that have that mindset that are those skiers in life that look like project management. It's you're skiing down a mountain. Clayton, you are somebody in my personal opinion that always looks, how can we fix the issue? How can we get around the trees? You have that mindset of, okay, there's this issue, but how can I get around it? Project management every day, you get an email, there's a new problem. You have to figure out a way to get around the trees. You're not someone who looks at trees because if you were, you wouldn't be there for 13, you wouldn't be in the industry for over 13 years. You would have, you would have, I would have hit a tree. A tree. Yeah. You would have hit a tree yeah. and you wouldn't have been able to get back up. So I think that it's finding those right people. And you know, we've talked about a lot of different topics about putting ourselves in situations where we have to find a way around the trees. And I think blockchain NFTs metaverse is the best skiers who are going to find a way around those trees because risk and reward. Like I'm a, I'm an all in guy. I'm a big believer. I, I think energy and enthusiasm is contagious. I, I think when we met, I saw this person in you that could really let loose. Like I saw it deep down, but when I first met you, I'm like, okay, he's really serious. I'm going to be straight up with you on this podcast. Over time, I've taken great pride on how can I break Clayton down a little bit into this more free-flowing down the water kind of guy. And this is more about being real with you, being honest with you. You asking me a question and me being as genuine and real as I can, but also coming up from a place when I disagree with something, tell you when I think we should do it a different way, tell you, mm-hmm. and really having that mutual respect there. And asking your opinion because I really value everyone's opinion in this world. I really think unless you give me very clear reason that your opinion is not valuable, I'm going to want to hear what you have to say because I'm interested in people. And when it comes down to, you know, I'm a high risk person and we've talked a lot about risk mitigation. I believe that you are somebody and correct me if I'm wrong, someone who, yes, you understand the scenarios where you have to do risk mitigation, but you also have this mind where you see these, these things happening in this world that maybe you do have to take on risk to make them, them happen. 
And you're not afraid of that. You're not against that. You just understand the situation very well and you understand when to wear that hat. When you're going to go to uh, Japan and you're going to wear the chill Clayton, fun Clayton hat. <laughs> or you're going to be at JLL and you're going to wear the serious Clayton fostering relationship, making sure everyone's taken care of hat. Yeah. And it's that understanding that I'm inspired by, I think is really cool because it's really hard to have that. And I think it takes years. And like you said, it's experience. So, you know, we've, we've delved up, we've delved deep into a lot of different conversations, a lot of different topics. And man, like this was killer. So for the final question of this episode, Clayton, how do you live life fast? <laughs> Going back to the roots. Yeah. I live life fast, I think, by with that recognition of, you know, you only have so many hours in the day, so many hours in this world, you need to, to set priorities. Um, you know, I'm not a perfectionist, as I, as I said earlier. And in fact, one of, the, one of the things I often say a lot, one of my favorite maxims is, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Because when you, when you, if you, if you are always focused just on perfection, there's so much you're going to miss because there's such a great, you know, a diversity of things that you can experience in your life. Uh, and you, and you need a diversity of experiences to, uh, to gain wisdom, to find out what you can do, what you can't, to find out where your talents are best applied. Um, so you, you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't just focus on, you know, doing everything perfectly all the time. You have to sometimes make some compromises there, but you have to use, uh, yeah, you, ha you have to use wisdom to try to figure out when, when you need to do that. And because sometimes it does, it does need to be perfect. It has to be the best. And, uh, really that only comes with, with time and experience. So yeah, that's, that's how I'm living life at, at, at my stage here. I'm not as fast as I used to be when I was young. I'm, I'm intentionally taking a, a slower pace much of the time, but I also am a busy guy and I'm trying to do many things with the many hats and, and roles that I wear, you know, in my job, you know, as a father with my kids, you know, with friends, you know, and then doing, doing other stuff of interest, you know, trying to, trying to do something that helps advance, you know, the values that I care about, you know, things like, you know, freedom, you know, yeah, wow. so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's how I'm living fast. So do you believe that fast living is for, for everybody or do you believe that you, 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 you mentioned that you think that with the way you live and the way you go about life, it's in a way that it's recognizing that there's a finite amount of time and you said you have to get wisdom, you have to have experience, but what about for a lot, we have a lot of younger listeners and they, they don't have much experience. They don't have a lot of wisdom, so to speak, or they don't feel that they do. How can you fast track that? Because we, we talked about time. Yeah. Is there no way? You can't. That's, that's the thing about wisdom. You can't, you can't fast track it. It's, it. It comes with experience, but it doesn't necessarily come automatically. 
just because you've lived a long life doesn't mean that you're wise. Mm -hmm. It's something you have to cultivate. And so uh, I think it's really important for, for you know, uh, I would recommend for your, for your younger, um, you know, younger, younger viewers, younger, and even for people my age or, or older, um, what, where does, where does uh, wisdom come from? Well, first of all, it comes from the idea that, hey, this is something valuable. Right? And you don't know what that thing is because you can't write a definition of, of what wisdom is. But it's something that is categorically different than just having a lot of information and knowing a lot of things. It's about like, what is, how do I set the right priorities in my life? How do I conduct myself in the best possible way? How do I put myself in a position such that when I'm laying on my deathbed, you know, after 90 years of life, I look back and I'm able to say, I did a pretty good job of focusing on the things that mattered from this perspective after having lived a whole life and not, uh, I guess, pissing my time away on things that didn't matter or that were counterproductive or that were just not good, right? So it's about trying to set an intention, I think, to... Um, to have an idea of what is, what is good and what is good is not synonymous with what is fun or what is pleasurable or what gives me immediate satisfaction. It's a much broader and deeper concept. So, and it takes a long time to understand what that is. And it takes putting yourself in some new situations and it takes stretching yourself outside your comfort zone before you will get enough experience to say, oh, okay, this is what is actually gives me long-term satisfaction. This is actually something I'm really happy I did or I'm really happy I avoided doing, right? That I'll be able to look back and say, you know, I did the right thing in that situation and I want to do more of that and I want to do less of this other thing, right? That's what wisdom is. Okay, well, you know what? You definitely are someone with a lot of wisdom and I know we only cracked the surface. I think the podcast is probably around an hour and an hour and a half. But yeah, I, that last little bit there, I really think is the crux. I, wisdom is something you, have, you almost have to just experience life, live life and figure it out as you go. There's no hack. There's, there's no playbook. Yeah. There's no hack. There's no playbook. That's, that's totally right. I was a shout out to Indy. There's, there's no playbook. He, he's going to get that reference, but yeah. yeah. Very eye-opening for some of myself. Obviously, I'm a lot younger than you. And a lot of reason why I do this, I'm interested in people. And I hope to have wisdom, so to speak, when I'm around your age. And I'm trying my best every day. And I think that's around just figuring out, throwing myself in situations that maybe I'm not good at and finding a way to win. That's always been my mindset. And through that is living fast. But from what I've got from you is you do live fast in certain aspects and you live slower in other aspects. You, you, you have this overarching thing in your mind that you understand that time is, is finite and you want to make sure that you live fast in the ways that are important to you mm -hmm. through wisdom, but also live a little bit slower in the parts that you believe that slow living may be the way to go. Maybe, maybe when I'm 80, 
I won't be trying to live fast at all. I'll just be trying to live slow. And that's my goal is to, is to get to that point where mm. I'm, I'm unhurried and deliberate because in my life, I've narrowed everything that I do down to only the things that, that matter. And it's not about like how many of the, them I can do. It's just about just doing the things that matter, doing them well, and being able to go to bed at night and say, you know, I, I pursued my vision of the good to the best of my ability. And, you know, I'm satisfied with that. Let's say with that. Yeah. Living fast until you're good enough to live slow. Yeah. There That's you it. Go. Yeah. Thanks, Weston. Pleasure having, having you on, Clayton. Have him on again for sure. He's a, he's a wise guy. Thanks, Weston.